The Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast, where we chat to your favourite authors and get behind what really makes them put pen to paper. Uh, This week, I'm very, very excited about this. We're joined by Michael Cashman, actor, activist, politician, co-founder of Stonewall, member of the House of Lords, and now an author. Now, Michael became a household name after playing Colin Russell on EastEnders uh, and went on to become a massively important LGBTQ activist uh, and an MEP. Um, His autobiography, one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square, is a wonderful memoir of his life. Michael, this is such a great read. Congratulations on this book. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed it so much. Interestingly, um, because it covers some dark areas as well as some wonderful areas, um, I loved writing it because working with my brilliant editors at Bloomsbury... um, they just said, let yourself go. And and there are, even now when I go back, there are passages of the book where I think, ah, oh, where did that come from? Yeah. Where did I find the ability to stand back and really observe truthfully mm. what it was like? So thank you. It, it means it's, a lot. It is. It's a fantastic thing. And did you did you find it almost therapeutic diving back into the past? Because there's things in your childhood that are, it's a difficult read and it, your frankness is so commendable. I mean, it's amazing when, when you get stuck into these, these moments. Um, well, if as, as probably the listeners will find out by the end of the interview, when I speak, it's a bit like, I'm a bit like a mosaic. It's not until all the colours are up there do you get the full picture. Mm. Um, but, but when it comes to writing about your life, if you're not honest, then you do a great disservice, not only to everything that you've done, but to the people in your life uh, and the people who've been in your life. And I wanted it to be honest. I wanted it to be honest about the abuse that I suffered and and survived and survived in order to become not only a survivor, but a victor. Mm. Uh, and to try and do things so that that wouldn't happen to, other, uh, to others. Um, but when Paul died, uh, he was 13 years younger than me and he died uh, six years ago uh, from a, a very aggressive cancer. The first draft that I wrote, it was like a eulogy. The man not only walked on water, but but turned, I think, uh, turned uh, sugar into into uh, wine. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was incredible. Um, and then going back, you have to, a bit like a, an actor working with a director, stand back and say, what is the story I want to tell? What can I afford to leave out? Mm. And 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 how can I do it with the utmost honesty? Um, and and Alexandra Pringle, the editor-in-chief at Bloomsbury, she said to me, I'll, I'll give you a tip. She said, show, don't tell. Mm. Don't tell the, the, the reader what to feel. Yeah. And in a way, that strikes to what you learn as an actor. Uh, Alan Akeborn, the brilliant uh, playwright, said to me, he said, what's, what's more moving? Someone crying... Or someone trying not to cry. Mm. What's funny? Someone laughing, or someone trying not to laugh. Mm. And once you bring that into your writing, you you sketch out the details, and hopefully, the the reader then associates with what you or the book is mm. is depicting. Very hard to do though, because you've got to take your life experiences that, that have happened to you, and you've got to go cold on them in a way. You've got to. Yes approach them analytically and and 
how do you keep the emotions out of it? Because there's some powerful stuff in there. Well, you have to, because otherwise all you're doing is indulging in self-pity. Yes, wallow, good. That's wallow, what I, that's and, what I would and, do. And, and go and get yourself a, a, a counsellor and a mm, therapist. Mm. Um, I think you, how I did it was by, by, by asking myself, what am I trying to convey? Okay, that something that happened when I was seven, um, I, I could have written about in an horrific way. But actually, sometimes things are much more shocking uh, when you describe them with a, a degree of brevity. Um, almost, if it's possible, writing silence into what's happening. Yeah. So that when the words are spoken by the people in that scene, you hold your breath as to what might happen. Yeah. Um, but, but writing about the East End, oh, the East End of, <laughs> of, of uh, old Mr. Pittaway sat on his piano, my grandfather pull, writhing on the floor, pulling on his wooden leg. Yeah. Um, because, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I say, like, I think in, in, in our block, which was right by the docks, there, uh, we had all sorts. And I say that there was the Kamaras, the only black family, and... Um, and Mr. Pittaway and then Mrs. Coots, who had to lay on her back on a kind of lay-on-your-back bicycle and cycle it to get round. And then there was uh, Josie the prostitute. Um, and, and, and I'm trying to depict a world that was an amazing community, that yeah. when you had no money, somebody else had a shilling for your gas meter. Yes, so there's a woman you'd go to and yes. she would give you the money, she'd lend you the money. Yeah, Betty, Betty Wood yeah. next door. Um, uh, Betty was always good for a shilling because <laughs> because Betty Betty's husband was a long distance lorry driver. See, and my dad, who was a docker, uh, they used to call it the bump, and you went on for a day, and then then you were bumped off at the end of the day. Right. So he was like in short term employment, um, and and so money was. The, oh, I always think now, if my mum had gone to university, the way she played moneylender against moneylender against loan shark to get the bills paid. Mm. Um, and, uh, and there was an excitement about living in the, in the docks, the East End. Um, uh, and so, so it was, it was a, it was a poor time, but it was a very rich time in terms of, um, people who looked after each other, um, looked out for one another, uh, and, but then my life changed dramatically when I failed my 11 plus. If I'd passed my 11 plus, yeah. I probably would not would not have done all of the things that I've done in my life. You'd have gone into academia or or, or other things would have happened to you. Because this is what you realise, isn't it? You, you, this point in the book where you realise you have, well, you decide you want to be a doctor. This, I mean, well, I'm skipping ahead a bit. Yeah. But you, having you, left school without yeah. without a biscuit, let alone a qualification, <laughs> but you've got no building blocks on which to to no. do that. So it's an incredible moment that. Just... But, but that that for me is uh, I'm passionate about what I call lifelong education. Don't 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 be put in a box if the box doesn't fit. Mm. Um, if somebody had said to me when I failed my eleven plus, when I went to my secondary modern school, that at the age of twenty five I would have decided I wanted to go and study medicine. <laughs> And that I that I would have done physics, chemistry, and biology. I would have said you're mad, yeah. but it shows you that when you want to do something and when you're motivated to do it, you can achieve so that it stuns you into disbelief. The human potential that we have that we never use. Um, and but yes, if I if I if I'd succeeded with my eleven plus, um, 
I would have gone off. I would have been one of those uh, bossy people that, uh, at the end of a computer or a phone. <laughs> You'd have uh, been a line manager. I oh, certainly wouldn't. Michael, and then the think, of it. think how the, um, <laughs> the, the the National Health Service has been been saved from me being a rebel doctor or, or rebel surgeon. <laughs> all because surgeon. you can do physics. All because of the physics. Uh, yes. I'm totally with you on that. Could never do physics. Always, uh, always yeah, was a And you know what? I mean, w- w- we might come to it later, but there was a book that if I'd known about that book when I was doing physics, my life would have changed. I would have become that doctor. This is what's fascinating. Though. This is what's fascinating about this book is that the, the turns you take, you know, left, right, left, you, suddenly you're, you're in the space of a page you're doing Oliver. Yes. This but, but also, uh, I, there I am in the West End earning more money a week than my dad mm. uh, at the age of 12. Um, I, I go into this amazing film with, with Billy Fury. But as somebody pointed out to me, my God, you had a lucky escape because you nearly landed all the confessions film. It yes. was between me and Robin Asquith. Yes. Um, and then the, in, and the implication in the book is they found out you were gay and that's why you didn't get the gig. It, it was that, certain, Yeah, there, there was a moment, and again, I, it, it's in the book, where, I, where it becomes absolutely clear to me that they, they are not going to take a chance with me because they suddenly realise I'm gay. Because the other thing about being in, in that profession was... Um, you could say it, but you couldn't enunciate it. Mm. Um, it's you. You could do it, but you couldn't be brazen or blazer. Um, and once, once, uh, and, and all, most of the parts I played were very. They, they were. It, it was nothing to do with um, sexual orientation or sexuality. That I, I had wonderful, wonderful parts, and you know, working with Elizabeth Taylor, that wonderful film I did uh, with her. Um, but when it came to the de- to depiction of sex, they were always very careful uh, about anything in your background. And I could, and I think I'm fair in the book when I say, yeah, I, I got it from their perspective that mm. they wanted uh, the Randy Confessions of a Window Cleaner, and what they didn't want was the newspapers saying, oh, by the way. Um, he lives with his mother and they crochet on a Friday night. <laughs> if only the newspapers would be that polite. I, mean, I know. We'll come on to the newspaper headlines uh, and, in a bit. And I God. certainly don't crochet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with crocheting. But it's an incredible thing. I mean, you mentioned Elizabeth Taylor there. I love the fact that you made them, Elizabeth Taylor made them put the lights back on at the end and suddenly oh. all these, well, you should tell the story. So mm. you were working on a film with Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, and, and it, was only, it was a very small cast of uh, Michael Caine, Susanna York, John Standing, Elizabeth Taylor, Ma- Margaret Layton. And... Um, and I just had one week on the film, uh, and uh, this very important scene with Elizabeth, and 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 I and I said I wanted a photograph taken with her, and they said, everyone said no, not not possible, absolutely not possible, <laughs> not with Elizabeth. And on the last day, I plucked up and I said, I said, Miss Taylor, could I have um, Elizabeth? Because she liked you to call her Elizabeth. Could I have a photograph taken with you? And she went, Oh, sure. Well, let's do it on your last day. I said, Well, today is my last day and, and they just called a wrap which as you know it's the, the day when the studio closes down that day all the lights are off very tightly regulated very well. tightly regulated because, it. because otherwise it's money mm. and Elizabeth Taylor just turned around and went let's have some lights around here <laughs> and somebody said what? she said I want the lights on and so somebody went, put the lights on put and then somebody else said who's turning the lights on it's Elizabeth Elizabeth wants to get the lights on get the lights on we had our photographs taken and then off she went. She pecked me on the cheek. Off she floated. And only Elizabeth Taylor could cost a studio thousands and thousands of dollars. 
by having a photograph taken for me. And it's a lo- and the photo's in the book, and it's, it's a lovely photograph for no other reason that it proves that once upon a time I did have long curly hair. <laughs> <laughs> there it was. There it was. Well, you both look beautiful in that photograph. And it's worth it, knowing the background, knowing the, the dollars that were poured into it, and knowing how the, the unionised nature of, of anyone working on a set. Mm. As soon as they press the button, that's overtime, yeah, right? That's it. That triggers all the costs. Um, so when we were actually writing this book, and obviously, you know, you've got You've got form with writing, working with Alan Akebourne mm. uh, up in Scarborough. Tell us a bit about that. He's such a genius, isn't he, Alan Akebourne? He, he is a genius. And when I, Tom, when I worked on the first um, draft with him uh, of my play, I had an amazing, and she's written about, an amazing uh, literary agent called Peggy Ramsey. She, although she referred to her, herself as a, a play agent, dear. She wasn't a literary agent. Is that what she would say? Yes. A play, a agent. play agent, okay, dear. Good. I represent plays. <laughs> and um, and she, she said to me when she first met me, I'd, I'd been in a, a, a gay musical and, and she said, you've clearly suffered in love. And it wasn't a question. Peggy decided. <laughs> and I said, yes. Anyway, um, Peggy got me, so I went and worked with Alan. Alan commissioned me up in Scarborough to, to produce a comedy thriller. And after that first draft, he then used to read the draft, the next draft, and send me letters. And I've kept those letters because they are, they are models on how to write a play and to write suspense within a play and develop character. Um, and it was called Before Your Very Eyes, uh, set in, in Blackpool. And it did amazing business. And then on the strength of that, Alan commissioned me to do another. So I was very lucky at that. Uh, relatively early age to work with a master mm. playwright, a man who still is producing and writing up in Yorkshire. He's prolific, isn't he? Yeah. That's unbelievable. So tell us then, compare writing a play to to writing a book. I mean, we've discussed about the nature of writing about your own life, but what about, forget that it's your life for a second, Michael, the actual act of writing, that, sitting down, what's your study like? Where do you do it? How do you find it? Is it easy? Is it a joy or is it difficult? Um, it, it's a joy to be able to tap into your imagination. And it's a joy to work with people who will allow you to get it wrong because only by getting it wrong can you then develop what you've got. I worked with J.B. Priestley and I said to Priestley, I said, I, I, I'd like to become a writer. Have you got any advice? He said, well, he said, uh, you wake up in the morning, you have a headache, nobody loves you. <laughs> Sit down, face the icy challenge of the paper and write. And if, young man, what I've just said to you doesn't make any sense, I suggest you get a job and make doubly certain it carries a pension because you'll need it. <laughs> but, but writing a play, I think, is infinitely easier than writing a book because you use dialogue. Yeah. Of course, you use silence and, 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 the, and the absence of words. Again, extremely important. Um, but you, as, a, as an actor, you tune in more as a playwright because you should as an actor have a very good ear on dialogue and the rhythms of of, of dialogue and how a rhythm goes with a certain accent um, with uh, with a book it's it's it is very very different because first of all you have to describe the world in which the the whole thing is taking place you have to describe the people you meet the characters the reactions whereas on stage the audience does all of that for you it's a very different um uh, a very different discipline because you really are the eye of the reader aren't you yes, you've got to take them through ex- the whole thing exactly that uh, and you're the ears 
of the reader. And so you've, you've got to be absolutely clear, it goes back to honesty, that what you're putting down, they can hear, they can see, otherwise they, they disconnect. But for me, writing is, it's, it's like a, a nine-to-five job. You have to commit those hours. Yeah. Even if you don't write, sitting there, committing to it, means you will. And Switch I, the internet off? Switch the it, switch the internet off. Yeah. Switch the phone off. Yeah. Have lots of coffee. Make sure you go from a standing position to a sitting position. Shift around because mm-hmm. I was getting a bad back. But I've got a wonderful old farmhouse that Paul and I bought in, in south uh, southwest Turkey, remote part. And yes, I've got problems with what's happening with the Turkish government. Uh, that's not the Turkish people. We always have to remember that with governments that you know the people who live in those countries. Uh, are good, decent, ordinary people. And I used to go out in the morning, whether it was on the beach, I'd spend about three hours and I'd be thinking about what I was going to write in the afternoon. Mm. And at two o'clock in the afternoon, I would sit down in the shade in the, of the farmhouse and then uh, commit to doing four hours with right. a tiny break in the middle. This must have been very emotional for you because at this point, had Paul passed away? Yes. So you're sitting in this place which you bought with him mm. and going through his memories. Was that cathartic? Was that painful? It, it was cathartic, but, but in the end, um, I had to realise that um, uh, I'd done my eulogy to him. That was, that was at the uh, cemetery. Um, uh, and that if I was going to get the fun of our amazing relationship out to the reader... Um, that uh, that I had to do it for them as well as as well as for me, uh, but but there was a, 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 a really interesting story. I just finished the book, and uh, I, I wanted to scatter Paul's ashes, and I decided to scatter them in a certain part of the garden. And I have a lovely man, Jumhur, who looks after the garden when I'm away. And and I went back about five months later, we had these amazing old, grey, boring um, cacti, huge, about three foot high, and out of it was coming this huge 12-foot stalk with a crescent of flowers on the end. And this was all around where I'd scattered his ashes, and I said to Jumhu, I said, I've never seen this before. And he said, uh, that's right. He said, right, so we've been, Paul and I have been together 31 years. He said, this plant only flowers after 30 years. And then it dies. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, that's typical of Paul. I scatter his ashes and I come back. And at the end of 12, 12 foot of foliage, there's all these little sparkling um, uh, orchid, uh, uh, cactus flowers. That's gorgeous. Um, Nature's fireworks. It's beautiful. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, Michael, we can't, I mean, we can't talk to you without talking about EastEnders. Let's get on to EastEnders. Mm. Now this comes, and this is part of the, you know, you said the words that are really triggering for me talking to you about it, having read the book. Fun, it's full of fun. Honesty, it's got so much honesty. Um, EastEnders, now for me, I have to jump in a bit here because watching you as Colin EastEnders, I was seven, eight years old and um, I, you know, that first gay kiss and I'm with my mum watching it. My mum is this, is, she reads the Daily Express. That's probably mm. all you need to know about my mum. No offence to any Daily Express readers, but you'd imagine she'd have a certain reaction to it. And she was, it was incredible because she said, that's, that's some people are and that's live, let, live and let live. And she gave the whole speech, the whole thing. And I, that's a lesson I learned. Very, very early on, you were an absolute huge moment for me. Huge moment oh. for me. And another big moment for me was watching you being interviewed. And you told a story about being something to do with being papped, something to do with someone knocking on your door, mm. and giving you five pounds. And then the next day, you'd see on the headlines, Gay Colin gives kid five pounds. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know when it was, I must have been probably 10, 11, 12, something like that. And that, that's when I, 
I just cottoned on to the manipulation of the media. And that moment, in mm. that one interview, I feel like I unlo- it unlocked everything for me. I've understood everything since that moment. So you're huge to me, oh, really, Tom. honestly. And I honestly mean that. So when I saw you were coming into interview, I was like, oh my God, it's, it's Colin. It's huge. <laughs> um, but EastEnders was, it was iconic for you. And I, you know, I don't want to define the whole book by that, but it's a big deal. And, and well, thank you for, for what you said. Um, the interesting thing for me is, um, yeah, it was tough, it was rough. Um, but Paul and my brothers and Paul's family, I think they had a lot, a lot rougher time because mm. I was up there getting the edge of the fame and they were doing with, dealing with the reality. Once Paul was outed uh, in, the, in the center pages of the News of the World, um, thereafter, they only wanted to know about us as a couple when there was a scandal. But I'm so proud of EastEnders because, again, that's the brilliant thing about writing your your memoir. You look back at the decisions that you took that completely changed your life. And if I hadn't gone into EastEnders, um, a bit like if I hadn't failed my 11+, the sequence of events, if I'd said to Julia Smith when they offered it to me that afternoon, no, I don't want to do it because... Uh, the way they write, write about gay men in the, in the tabloids, the depiction, the, uh, uh, the, the annihilation of, 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 of someone's humanity because they're different. I don't want, I don't want to do that. that. And remember, when I went in, AIDS and HIV was depicted as the gay plague. Mm. Don't pick, sit next to a gay person on the tube. Because you don't. could catch it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and going into that show, portraying that character, who was very ordinary, and it wasn't until three months in that they realised he was gay that he had a wonderful relationship with people on the square like Dart and Pauline Fowler, meant they began to learn about the human being and his relationship with, with Barry and that, that infamous kiss. Um, and then the government brought in the first anti-gay law in 100 years, an anti-gay law against a group of men who were predominantly suffering uh, in the forefront of, from AIDS and HIV, or potentially. Instead of supporting us and lifting us, they tried to push us down. And I knew if I didn't go on that march against that law, that I would never be able to look myself in the face again, mm-hmm. uh, in the mirror again. And going on that march led to the founding of Stonewall, led to me and my passion going into equality and activism and then into politics. When I was asked to run for the European Parliament, I, I said, no, I, haven't, I didn't go to university. Other people... Can't do, Can't do physics. Can't do physics. Can't do physics, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and so EastEnders is a huge part of where I am now. It's a lovely story when I went into the House of Lords. You get introduced so that there's a ceremony. And, I'd ha- and it, was, it was four days after Paul died, my introduction. And I look back and I think, how, how did I do that? I don't know. Because um, Paul was... A, was the breath of my life and trying to live without breath afterwards daily is difficult um but i got through the ceremony and we had a small party and i came out and this little man philip i've got to know him he's one of the 
kind of police security people. And he went, oh, hello, Colin. How are you? <laughs> and I said, hello, I'm all right. How are you? And he went, uh, what are you doing here then? I said, I said I've just been introduced. I'm now a, a, a lord. He went, oh, he said, you Lord Colin of where? I said, <laughs> I said I'm not Lord Colin of anyway. He said, should be Lord Colin of Walford, shouldn't it? That's brilliant. <laughs> um, I love it. So Colin hasn't left me and I wouldn't want him to because what we did, the reaction to that kiss and and... Look, I know I go on too long, but let, your, your no, mum no. said ra something rather brilliant. And it was encapsulated in a letter after that first kiss that I got. And I'll never forget it. She said, this woman, she said, I watched the Sunday afternoon repeat with my two kids, seven and nine. And the nine-year-old said to me, why is Colin kissing Barry? And she said, I said to him, well, as, as mummy loves daddy, so Colin loves Barry. And that's when I understood why the tabloids and, and the, those awful politicians uh, were so against us. It was because we were challenging their narrow view of the world that you couldn't be loved unless you conformed to their stereotype. Um, all right, OK, uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Uh, we are going to be back in a sec with some important questions uh, for Michael Cashman. Lord Michael Cashman, uh, who joins <laughs> us today. <laughs> it's never not funny. You, every time I've said it, you've got... You're listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. My name's Tom Price. We're joined by Michael Cashman talking about his brand new book, One of Them, From Albert Square to Parliament Square. It's time for Behind the Cover. This is where we ask our author uh, to read us an extract of, of the new book um, that particularly resonates with them. It might be a, a great introduction, their favourite bit of prose, or just a cracking bit of dialogue. Maybe not, because we've already talked about not being too much dialogue on this. Um, so sit back and let's let uh, Michael uh, take us through uh, their favourite point in the book. Over to you, Michael. It was a cold December, but it wasn't the cold that brought me into the world. It was a street fight outside Stepney East Station. A group of men jumped my dad, fist and boots flying in all directions. My mum did the thing any decent wife would do. She waded in. It was a vicious fight. She threw a few punches, extracted my dad, and then they escaped home on a passing bus. Inside their threadbare council flat, my dad inspected his cuts and bruises and my mum let out a cry, clutched her stomach and three weeks early, earlier than planned went into labour with me. The following morning, I was born at Bancroft Road Hospital, Mile End. My dad turned up to look over his second son. He hadn't been around for the first. After a quick glance, he told my mum to take care of herself and went and put my name down at the Port Labour Board so that when I left school, I would follow in his footsteps as a docker. Then he embarked on a pub crawl with Grandad Cashman to wet the baby's head and to settle scores from the day before. Love it. I love it, Michael. How is working as a docker going? Is it going well? It's going very well. <laughs> and as, uh, in, in the tradition of dockers, I'm helping myself as much as I'm helping others. <laughs> what I love, I mean, this is an important part of the book, isn't it? A big character in the book is London. That's a huge part of your life. And it reminds me of uh, memoirs of um, Danny Baker, Alan Johnson. It really resonates yes. with that. It, it's got the same sort of thing going on. It's fantastic. I love it. Uh, so, Michael, we've got some listener questions. Oh, very good. Mm. Uh, Dan on Instagram. Hi, Michael. I was wondering, what's the most important thing you'd like people to take away away from your autobiography that no matter what happens to you in life if you have the courage to love and the courage to be loved you can be yourself um 
because it's the only thing that that gets you through. Um, yeah, and I've learned it. I, I, I never, because of what happened to me, I never believed I could be loved. If you loved me, you had to hurt me. And that's why with Paul, the, the, the early years of the relationship were so difficult because the more he said he loved me, the more I needed to push him away, the more I needed to get him to hurt me. And he wouldn't. Um, and so, and, and, and when he died, I, I suddenly realized the incredible lesson that love only exists in the present tense. You know, when someone says, I don't love you anymore, you can look them in the face and say, you know what, that's absolute rubbish because, because once you love someone and they accept that love, they are changed forever. And so the fact that he's been dead nearly six years um, and there isn't a day that goes by where I don't wish him here or wish me with him, and I sadly don't believe in, in, in a life hereafter, um, it's, it, it's knowing that the love we had um, gives me that courage to go on. And it's incredible. This book crackles with love throughout the whole oh, thing. Family Thank love, romantic love, professional love. It's, it's, it's what drives it. It really is. Thank you. Um, Beth on Facebook. And this is something we haven't actually talked about much yet. Um, hi, I know you probably get asked this all the time, but I was wondering, what have you enjoyed more, acting or politics? Well, when I get the two together, I don't have to choose. Somebody said to me, lovely, Lord Brown of Eton under Hayward, we did an amazing debate about the defence of human rights. And, um, and I turned up and I, didn't, I, I thought I didn't want to do my 10-minute speech. I'd had a rough morning um, watching someone go through disability assessment. Um, and I thought, I'll do that trick. Get into the chamber and say, well, my lords, uh, I, I was going to make a, a, a rather lengthy speech, but having listened to the contributions, all the points have been made, then you sit down and you get the brownie points. Right. But as it went on, I thought, no, come on. You know what you want to say. And I stood up and I did this 10-minute speech and it got a lovely reaction. And, and as I passed Lord Brown of Eton under Haywood, he went, well done, Cashman, stole the show. <laughs> stole the show. I said, it's not a show. He went, it is. <laughs> um, but joking apart, they are so different because as an, as an actor, um, when I played Prospero in The Tempest, that was a joy, joy. Uh, that that came true to be st to stand there and say, now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Um, to stand there and speak those words in the way that I wanted to speak them, um, to play so many wonderful parts is fantastic escapism. But when you stand up and you're doing politics, you're speaking about potentially somebody's life. When we defended and um, managed to stop a young gay Iranian from going back to Iran, we literally were a part of a small group that prevented him being returned to Iran where he would have been hung by his neck until he was dead. Um, and so I've enjoyed both. And again, looking back at my career, the luxury of having all of the different things to do and the imagination to throw myself into them. And that imagination comes from Miss O'Sullivan, that primary school teacher who, who realised that there was something in me and she would get me to read aloud. And, I, and that was my first audience, yeah. that the, the class of seven and eight-year-olds would go so quiet. Yes. 
I've not really answered your question. No, you I'm have. really sorry. No, I love it. You often talk about this sense that you've got of overreach, that somehow you've overreached yourself. And I think anyone reading this will know that you've done... This is not an overreach. You deserve everything that's happened to you. And... Um, the, the fight that you have in the first half, when you're acting, it feels like you're, you're fighting to entertain, you're fighting yourself almost. But then you go into politics and you take the fight outwards. You're fighting for other people. And that's really interesting. So the politics, it does connect with the acting. It, it must be very satisfying. Not that acting's unimportant, but it must be so satisfying now as a politician to make change happen. Yes, and, and, and the fact that I've brought about, um, with Stonewall, as I describe in one of them. You co-founded Stonewall. Co-founded Stonewall. And that came out, that came about because we lost the battle against that anti-gay law, section uh, 28. But to stand back and be part of a, um, because, sorry, let me qualify this. The changes that have occurred in my lifetime around equality issues have not been achieved by my generation. It was achieved thousands of generations ago when women and men stood up and said, no, you can't say that. No, you can't do that. And the connection with gener- thousands of generations past means you're asking the next generation to carry it forward because it's not new. The fight's been around forever and the fight will come back. And so in the House of Lords, the fact that I've been able to change legislation so that, uh, as an example, widening the fact that men and women who were arrested uh, for what were called homosexual crimes years ago uh, and that are no longer crimes now, that they too can be pardoned and have that conviction wiped off their record. That what I'm doing with people who were kicked out of the armed services, some who had everything ripped away from them, even the potential to work afterwards because their papers were stamped dishonourable discharge, righting the wrongs of the past, forgiving but never forgetting. To be able to do that as a legislator is, is a privilege. Um, and uh, and knowing that you have to work with others, you can't. It can't be party political. The great thing about working in the European Parliament, no one party has a majority, so you have to work across the party political mainstream. Very rarely with the fringe right or the fringe left, uh, hardly ever. Um, and equally, in the, in the, um, the why the House of Lords works. So I think so effectively is because you work with the other parties because, again, no one party has a majority. So when I got my amendment accepted by the government, I did it by working with the government, yeah. not working against. And that is the way of the future. Yes. That you, you have your elections and then you say, right, now we come together and we realise that compromise is a positive word and not a negative. Mm-hmm. The failure of tribal politics in the last few years has been... Something to behold. Um, and it is amazing. You, you highlight in the books, fact, I did not know until 1998 it was illegal to have homosexual relations anywhere outside of your own home. Yes. Um, until 1998. Well, um, they decriminalised in 67. Yes, of course. Uh, but, 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 but you could still uh, be prosecuted. And indeed, the prosecutions went up because if you approached somebody on the street, you were arrest- arrested for soliciting for an immoral purpose, mm. importuning behaviour likely to cause a breach of the peace. People were arrested for kissing on on that basis. Uh, And it wasn't until we achieved an equal age of consent uh, in 1998 uh, that we finally made it okay for for gay people, two gay men or two women, uh, to go off to somebody else's home or a hotel um, and indulge in a bit of physical frivolity. (laughs) (laughs) We've all done it. We've all done physical frivolity. (laughs) 
Um, I can't remember what... I'll have to look look it up in the dictionary. Google it, Google it, Lord Cashman, Google it. Um, And then erase your history. So, now, Michael, we're getting towards the end of this interview, and thank you, it's been so lovely to talk to you. What an absolute privilege to meet you. Um, uh, And and you, and... Well, thank you. Um, We can't let you go, though. (laughs) It says here. We can't let you go without asking you the important questions. Okay. Oh, right, okay. There's three of them. Question number one. If you could have written any book in history... What would it be, please? Well, I've got two, uh, and the second one would come with a, a proviso. Uh, first is the complete works of Shakespeare. Because of the, the man's ability to imagine, to stand in the shoes of others, and if you read The Merchant of Venice, if I had to choose one, I'd, I'd choose that one, because uh, it deals with, deals with racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, uh, misogyny, xenophobia, uh, and it was written 400 years ago, a reminder that these things are perpetually with us. Uh, Second one, so if I could rewrite a book, it would be the Bible. Okay. I'd I'd write write the Bible, um, uh, and I'd uh, I'd get rid of um, the Old Testament, and I would write up the brilliance of love uh, the love between two human beings, and reinforce the concept that no one can stand in judgment other than if you believe in God, God. Question number two, if you could be any character in any book, who would you be and why? Um, I, I, I can't... I, I've been racking my brains uh, uh, about this, uh, and, and I can't really choose. Um, so I suppose... Uh, it would have to come down to, uh, and I've forgotten his name, the the, the young boy in um, Call Me By Your Name, because he goes on a journey again, discovering himself and discovering love, dis- discovering the loneliness of being yourself and the integrity of becoming yourself. So it would be Elio Perlman. Okay, lovely, lovely. Okay, and final question for you, Michael. If you could only read one book for the rest of your life, not allowed to say Shakespeare. Yep. Okay. If you could only, if you could only read one book for the rest of your life, who, what, which book would it be? Again, you see, I, I, as you can, you with these answers, you know exactly why I've jumped from career to career to career. It sounds like I'm a uh, a career salesman. Um, it would have to be the uh, the Ascent of Man by Jacob Bronowski. He was the one who showed me the window into physics as a science that makes absolute sense of biology and chemistry. Uh, He traces the cradle of the human race, uh, that tiny place in Central Africa where we all originate from. Um, And it's a powerful reminder uh, of what we all have in common and the reason I would reread it and reread it is I hope to live to witness that we recognize that there are, there are other forms of life outside of this world and it, and it will make this world a country amongst countries rather than a, a world that is filled of countries protecting borders, keeping people out. Uh, and that's why the ascent of man, yeah, I would read it and reread it and reread it. 
And maybe if you'd read that, you would have passed the physics. And then I wouldn't then be, you wouldn't here, be now. here now. Thank and you'd you so be saying, change. how great, I could talk about Linda LaPlante. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, Michael Cashman, it's really been lovely to meet you. Thank you for doing the Magic Book Club podcast. Uh, one of them, from Albert Square to Parliament Square, is out now. Lord Colin, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I could resist. I could resist. <laughs> thank you. You have been listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Until next time, happy reading. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate and subscribe. Thanks in advance. Five out of five, yeah? Cool. <laughs> 